A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. This Christmas season, learn what the Bible says about why Christmas is important and why the coming of the Son of God means salvation for every man, woman, and child. If you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, the book of Luke in your Bible, the third book in what is called the New Testament, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles this morning. The book of Luke uh, is... um, it's written by a doctor. Luke was a physician. Matter of fact, if we were to study the entirety of the New Testament, primarily the book of Acts, we would see that Luke, who is a physician, was the physician of the apostle Paul and was kind of his personal physician by and large. And he is writing the book of Luke, if you notice in chapter 1, Verse number three, it says, it says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things uh, from the very first, to write unto thee in order, uh, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was a man of renown, a man of authority, if you will, a man of political prominence. That's who Theophilus was. And Luke is writing Theophilus. It's a, really the book of Luke is the gospel, your Bible would say the gospel according to Luke, and that's what it is. But he is writing to this one individual, verse number four, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And so Luke is saying this, Theophilus, I talked to you. I told you the gospel. I told you that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. I've instructed you, and not only me, certainly I think we would include to Theophilus, and there's an assumption here, but that Theophilus had heard the gospel from many other folks other than just Luke. And then Luke is writing him under the, what we call the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is telling Luke what to say. I'm writing you that you might know Now, this is an important phrase here, the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And I want to say this very clearly. The Bible is a book that brings certainty to the message of the gospel. God gave us the Bible so that it could be certain. Some people say, well, I think the Bible, I said this in the great 30 service, the Bible is a fairy tale or it's just a book of stories or whatever. No, 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 no. You say that because you don't understand it. You say that because you've not read it. You say that because you've not studied it. Whatever the case may be, there might be a lot of reasons why you say that, but we know this for a fact, that the reason God gave the scripture is that you could know with certainty that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that heaven is real and hell is real and God is real and Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation for all mankind and you and I both can know that with certainty. We need not doubt that. We need not, I mean, we could debate that, we could talk about it, we can help you find certainty, but the answers to the questions of the skeptic are answered in the word of God and that's exactly what Luke is doing here. Well, where does Luke start? Well, Luke starts really with this wonderful account that we're going to look at, this historical event that happens in verse number five. Now, Luke chapter one is 80 verses. We will not read all of that. If we did, we would read it and go home. But we will read just a few verses starting in verse number five. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, 
of the course of Abiah, or this is where he ministered in that course or in that way, in that time period, in that vein, if you will. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. They had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went in to the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of the incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell on him. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. Now, if you were to do an on-the-street interview and you were to ask people, hey, you just stop people, can you tell me who the primary characters are in the Christmas story? Most people would say, or what would be said by most people would be the Christ child. It would also be said that Mary and Joseph and maybe the angel Gabriel, that would be the, the tier one people. They'd probably have the most votes. Some folks would say the shepherds, the wise men, maybe King Herod or the, the innkeeper who told them there was no room in the inn. Maybe it would be those folks and, the, and they would have fewer votes. Still fewer votes would be two people that we find in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 36, respectively, Simeon and Anna, two people that served in the temple, an old man named Simeon who saw Christ and then he died. It was prophesied that he would see Christ and he declares that Jesus is the Christ, which was stunning and informative and helpful to his parents and a reminder. And Anna, the same thing, an older lady that served in the temple. And we've preached on her uh, many, many times through the years. Well, then we would come to a very important couple in Luke chapter 1 that probably no one would mention. And if it was, it would just be a few people and a very, very small percentage. It would be the people that we just read about in the Christmas story, Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. Well, why are they important in the Christmas account? Well, they're important in the Christmas account because they're the parents of John the Baptist, and the Bible promises in Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 3, that someone would come and prepare the way for Christ, where it says in Isaiah 43, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The person that is being spoken of here is the forerunner for Jesus Christ. That man is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus Christ. And he would preach a message of repentance of sin and turning to God as he prepared the world for the coming Christ. That was John the Baptist's whole ministry was to prepare the world for Jesus Christ. It was John the Baptist who would first publicly say as an adult that Jesus was the Christ. He said in John chapter 1, verse number 29. Now, Anna and Simeon did when he was a baby, but in John 1, 29, the Bible says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. 
Behold the Lamb of God. John is baptizing and Jesus is coming to, to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, there's a huge crowd of people there. And John has been preaching about Jesus Christ, just to put it in perspective. John's been preaching about the coming Messiah. John's been preaching that there's only one way to heaven. John's been preaching that there's no other way into heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. John's been preaching clearly that salvation is by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. And then Jesus comes walking up and there's a crowd of thousands of people there and John boldly declares and points to Jesus Christ, behold or look at or pay attention to the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. It's interesting that we still live in a world of sin. He didn't say, behold the Lamb of God, which takes the sin out of the world. Some people often wonder, they say, well, if, if God is real, how come there's still sin in the world? Because the Bible doesn't say he'll take sin out of the world, but he died to take away the sin of the world, that the whole point of Jesus coming is so that the sin that you and I carry could be eradicated, could be taken away, could, could be offered on the mercy seat and covered by the death of Christ. Why did we have to take away, or not we, we can't, but why did he have to take away the sin of the world? Well, because we live in a world filled with darkness. You ever notice we live in a dark world? I mean, it's just a, if I can be so bold, kind of a crummy time to be alive. I often think, like, when would I like to be alive? Like, if I could. Well, I want indoor plumbing. I want that. And I prefer air conditioning. So in a perfect world, I don't know, something about me wants to live in the 70s. I don't really like the bell bottoms and the big hair, but maybe that's just me. But it seems like it's just a dark time. It's a difficult time to be alive. I, I was doing some study this week, and China is currently posturing for an eventual takeover of Taiwan. Russia is increasing the number of its troops on the Ukrainian border and at a national symposium of defense specialists this last week, I heard that they believe that Russia plans to invade the Ukraine within the next few months and probably within the month of January. Crime is up in our city. Crime is up in our state. Crime is up in our nation, in our city, roughly 30%, astronomically high in our nation and in our state. Mass killings seem to be in a, almost a weekly event. I, I, I'm old enough to remember, and some of the rest of you are as well, what is probably known as the, the first major school shooting that happened in, in Columbine, Colorado, many years ago. And that made the news and the headlines, and we talked about it as a country, as a community, for months and months and months, and some even years, and some even date their, their life by that. Oh, I was 10 when Columbine happened. I was 22 when Columbine happened, whatever the case may be. But now it seems like it's just a regular event. Week after week, it seems like mass killings are the thing. Why? Because we live in a very dark world. Child trafficking is at an all-time high. Sex trafficking is at an all-time high. Drug use and alcohol are destroying more families than ever before. And unfortunately, those in political power who have the ability to do something with it want to do nothing to stem the tide of this crime and have enacted zero bail policy so that people that enact crime go into jail and get out immediately to do more crime. And why do they do that? I would submit to you they do that because they have an agenda that is anti-stability, anti-family, 
ungodly and anti-God. And it comes from the dark forces of Satan. But we're not alone. We're not the first people that lived in dark times. The people to whom we, or about whom we just read, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they lived in dark times. They lived in public turmoil. The world in which they lived was very dark. The leader of the nation of Israel, and the, or they weren't a nation, but a region that we would call Israel. And much of Palestine at the time was a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an Idumean or an Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau and he was vile towards the, the Jews and the Israelites. It was a very contentious relationship. Herod, through bribery, through lying and fast-talking and corrupt politics and constant scheming, garnered the favor of Rome, which was the leading nation of the day, and put him in authority over Israel and Palestine. The prestigious and coveted title, King of Judea, was given to him, which it was not given to everybody but it was, that was a leader for Rome, but it was given to him at the recommendation of Anthony and Octavius about 35 years before John the Baptist was born. I mean, this guy, Herod, was in the political elite. He was political power. And he, he gained this not because of what he did for the people, but as G. Campbell Morgan rightly said, the title of King of Judea was a result of his sycophancy with the Roman Empire. He called himself a king, but he was really just a, a puppet of Rome. Herod was a moral degenerate. He had 10 wives and he was terribly brutal and bloody. He was not a good dude in any way. He did not hesitate to kill whenever it served his purposes. He killed his competitors. He killed his enemies. He killed a number of wealthy Jews to confiscate their resources and put it in his own coffers. He even executed a number of his own family members. He killed his wife or one of his wives. He killed some of his sons. He killed extended family. If he felt in any way threatened by them, he would kill them through stabbing, forced drowning, strangulation, poisoning, and other violent means. And he would often do so publicly because he was just trying to to prove he was in charge. His most violent act that we read about in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, when he heard about the Messiah being born, Jesus the Christ child being born in Bethlehem, in an effort to remove any threat to his throne, he had every baby boy in Bethlehem killed in that whole region who was two years old and under. It was a dark time. Now I know that sometimes we think of it like it wasn't as dark as our time, but moms, imagine you're sitting at your house and in comes a Roman soldier to your house in Bethlehem and looks at your baby boy and doesn't ask for a birth certificate and right there takes his life. That's a dark time. And if you have two or three boys, well, I guess you couldn't have three unless you had twins, but however many you had, he takes every one of them. And that happened through the whole region. He was a vile dictator. But the problem wasn't just with the political situation. There also was a problem of family grief. Their darkness extended far beyond simply politics. They had family grief. Notice verse number seven. The Bible says in our text, they, Elizabeth and Zacharias, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were now well stricken in years. 
they, they, they were without a child. And they were never going to have a child because they were well stricken in years. Now, in the Jewish culture, if you were older than 65, you were considered to be in old age. At 65, you became an old person. So most of you in here are not old yet, but prayerfully, we will one day, one day get there. At 65, you became old. At 70, you were considered what the Bible terms a hoary head or a gray head. Some of us are prematuring to 70. We're getting there much more quickly than we wanted to, but we become a hoary head, or in the Jewish culture, a hoary head at 70. By the time you got to 80, you were what's called, what we read in this text in verse number seven, well stricken in years. At 80 years old, you became well stricken in years. So if any of you are 80 in here, you are well stricken in years, which is not a surprise to you. You already knew that you were. According to the scripture, verse number seven, Zacharias and Elizabeth were both 80 years old. And notice what they have, no child. They had no child. The sting of barrenness is painful in our day. Women who don't have children are, are, are barren, and it's painful. But in this day, the day we read about in Luke chapter 1, it was a terrible thing for a Jewish woman to be barren. It meant it took away any hope of her having the Messiah. It, it, she was often uh, looked upon as though there had been divine or divine punishment in her life or God had punished her because she didn't have a child. I'm not saying it's, it's right, but that's what the culture said. And it was the source often of public humiliation. Like if, if you didn't have a child, you were publicly humiliated. People said things about you. People snickered behind your back. When the ladies would go to get water or, or be in the marketplace, people would say, oh, that's Elizabeth, the one who can't have children. And that's her. Even as an old, old person, you say, oh, it couldn't have been like that. Look over at verse number 25. Verse 24, and after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, you say, well, what's the buildup to this? Well, Zacharias is in the temple, and God tells them, the angel of God tells them that they're going to have a son, the angel of God, Gabriel, and Zacharias says, okay, and they, they, he finishes his time. He had to work 30 days in the temple. It was his required time to serve in the temple that we read about in our, read about in our text, and then when that time of service was over, he would go home, and normal relationships would, would begin again between he and his his wife and the Bible says that that she conceived in verse number 24 after the normal relation that a husband and wife should have on a regular basis to ward off temptation and come together in one flesh as God has rightly designed and they come together and then she conceives at 80 years old which for her was amazing and she hides herself for five months and then this is what she said after being uh, pregnant for five months. The Lord hath dealt with me in the day, verse 29, wherein he looked upon me. Notice what she says, to take away my reproach among men. In other words, she says, I'm pregnant now, and this takes away my reproach or the mockery that men are giving me. And she doesn't mean men in general. She just means the word men here means mankind in a general sense, that people looked at her and mocked her and ridiculed her, and she saying God has taken that reproach or that mark or that sting away from my life at 80 plus years old. God's taken that away. So notice this, they had political darkness 
Herod the Great, this abusive, totalitarian, vile, evil dictator whose only goal was to satisfy his own desires and whims and wishes. And then they had family darkness. They can't have a child. It's just these two. When they die, their name will not continue on. And then I want you to notice as well, they had spiritual darkness. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, ever since God founded this nation with Abraham about 2,500 years prior to this time, about 2,000 years prior, I should say, to this time, uh, when God founded the nation of Israel, they had never been out without the word of the Lord other than for brief periods. God had sent prophets and priests and people had, had, had spoken the word of the Lord. They didn't have the Bible as we have it in any way, shape, or form, but, but they would have prophets that would come and speak, and they had the, the Old Testament and, and you could go to the temple and you could hear it read and, and they had some Pharisees and spiritual teachers who would teach them things but, but they didn't have a uh, they, they, they would have that and then in the midst of that prophets would come and they would preach prophets like Elijah and Elisha, uh, Jeremiah prophets like Daniel though he served in Babylon he was still ministering to the Jews and others and they would have Samuel who was a priest and a prophet and many many others who would preach the truth of God's word and would preach the word of God to the people. Well, by this time of Zacharias and Elizabeth, they had not heard from God for 400 years. Not a word from God for 400 years. It's called by many the period of silence. When God stopped talking to the people, when there was no word from the Lord, that, that inner period or that, that, that intermission period between the Old and the New Testament, and they hadn't heard from God for 400 years and, and, and no direct word, it was spiritually dark. People were trying to come up with their own ways of satisfying their religious desires, their own ways of satisfying their spiritual desires. The Pharisees had come up with about 5,000 laws to help them keep the Ten Commandments. It was very rigid life that they tried to force on everybody in the nation. If you didn't do what the Pharisees said, they would remove you from the temple. I mean, it was a dark, difficult, bad, harsh time to be alive. And the Christmas story starts with a really old man and a really old lady having a baby. 80 years old, and they have a child. The Christmas story is a time of, leading up to it, is a time of grave difficulty. Zacharias and Elizabeth were living in hard times. Not different from us. But why are they living in hard times? Well, very clearly, they're living in hard times because the sin that is in the world. The destruction of sin that is in the world. They, they lived under a Roman rule. They were despised by uh, the, the, the world at large. They had a tyrannical despot as a leader. The nation was in moral decline. They hadn't heard from God and they had no child. It was almost hopeless. Somebody said rightly one time that the worst thing to ever lose is hope. The worst thing to ever lose is hope. When you lose hope, you really lose everything. It becomes 
hopeless. Watch a sporting event, and, and if your team is, is close and it gets closer to the end of the game and the opposing team starts taking the lead, let's take basketball, and your team starts losing by 10, 12, 15, 20 points, and you get to that 20-point mark and about a minute and a half left in the game, you, if you're like me, you kind of turn the TV off. Why? Because there's no hope of them coming back. Back in the day, we used to root for the Chargers, and you'd turn the game on, watch the kickoff, and turn it off. It was hopeless. <laughs> it was hopeless. But I want to say this morning that with God, there is always hope. The Bible says in Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. In hope of, that word hope means expectation. In expectation or looking forward to eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The, 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 the condition of the world is not a surprise to God. I've heard some people say, uh, God, when man sinned, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were up in heaven and they had to decide what to do. And Jesus said, Father, I'll go and I'll pay for the sin debt of mankind. That sounds really pretty. It sounds like a nice story, but it's totally false. It's untrue. Why? Because before there was ever a created world, before there was ever a created being, before two atoms were ever joined together, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit already knew that Jesus Christ would die for the sin of mankind. And that was determined before the world began. The hope of eternity started long before God ever created the world. And we come to our passage and it's dark. But it's not hopeless. It's dark, but it's not hopeless. No, I, I said it's dark, but it's not hopeless. Well, Pastor, what, what's, the, what's the condition? I mean, do you know how bad our world is? Yeah, I do know. Well, well, don't you think it's hopeless? No, no. Where there's God, there's always hope. I said where there's God, there's always hope. Some of y'all need to come to the understanding that with God, there is always hope. There's never a point when life is without hope as long as God is involved. Some of your marriages are on the brink of not making it. Some of your children are really struggling. Some of your careers seem like they're taking a turn for the worse, and you're wondering what's going on. Can I tell you, with God, there is always hope. It doesn't matter how dark the time is. With God, there's always hope. Well, do you know about the mandates? I might lose my job. Mandate, no mandate, there's hope in Jesus. Well, don't you know about the, the taxes and they're going to raise our taxes? Taxes up, taxes down, there is hope in Jesus. My kids are struggling. Kids struggling, kids doing well, there is hope in Jesus. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. As long as there is God, there is hope. They had hope. And even in the darkness, the hope led them, in verse number six, to live for God. And they were both, the Bible says, righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. They were both, both, that means Zacharias and Elizabeth. Men, it wasn't the wife that was leading spiritually. 
Ladies, it wasn't the man that had his, just the private worship time. No, they both, it's an important word, they were both righteous before God. Men, it wasn't like, oh, this is what the family does and I just go along to keep everybody happy. Oh, no, 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 no. They were both righteous before God. I hear people say all the time, I'll go to keep her happy or I'll go to keep him happy. Can I be super candid with you? We serve the Lord. We go to church. We read the word. We do what we do. Not to keep our spouse happy, not to keep the pastor happy, not to make the music guy happy, but to make Jesus happy. And we both are righteous before God. We're both righteous before God. Walking in all the commandments or keeping the commandments, walking in the way that the Lord commanded them to obey. Whatever God told them to do, that's what they were doing. And they had been doing it. This whole verse is in the present active tense, meaning this, that they had been doing it and they kept doing it. That this had been a pattern of their life. It wasn't on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again. That they served the Lord when things were good and they stopped serving bad or they stopped serving when things were good and started serving when things were bad. No, no, no. They just kept serving the Lord. They just kept walking for God, with God. They kept walking with him. They kept, they were righteous. They walked in his commandments and in his ordinances. And then the Bible says this word, they were blameless. The word blameless means you find no fault or deficiency could be found. Not that they were perfect, but that they were striving to be intentional in their walk with God. They didn't have a church attitude and an at-home attitude. They, 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 they didn't have a church lingo and a world lingo. They didn't come to the church and say amen and cuss a blue streak at work. No, there was, there was nothing that could be held on to them. They didn't have a church attitude and then their kids go, oh yeah, but if you knew what my parents were like at home. They didn't have a church marriage and a home marriage. They were blameless. They were consistent. They kept walking with God. Oh, they weren't perfect. But in the darkness, I want you to know, they were blameless. Blameless doesn't mean perfection. Blameless means consistently striving to be what God wants me to be. And when I mess up, I fess up and I start all over again, walking before him. The Bible says a just man falleth seven times and riseth yet again. Can I be super candid with you? When you mess up, you need to fess up. And then you got to get up. That's pretty good. I wish it was in my notes. When you mess up, fess up, and then get up. Some of y'all mess up, fess up, and stay down going, well, you don't know what I did back in 19-whatever or 2000-whatever or last Friday night. No, I don't need to know, but you messed up. Oh, I fessed up. I sought repentance. Well, then it's time to get up and start living for God all over again. There's not, it's not unique to you. It's not unique to me. We struggle with the same things these guys struggle with. That's one of the reasons I love the Bible so much. Is there's nothing unique to me. There's nothing like, oh, pastor, you don't know. Nobody's been through what I've been through. No, bro, millions of people have been through what you've been through. Others have been through what I've been through. Take comfort from the reality that if God will bring them through, he'll bring you through, and you can live for God the entirety of your life. Well, but I've walked away from the Lord for years. Okay, well then get back. Well, well, when do I do that? Now. 
Do I need to negotiate with him? No, no negotiation. Repentance and return. That's it, man. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm coming back. He'll take you with open arms. Matter of fact, he says he's standing at your heart's door and he's knocking and saying, will you let me come in and fellowship with you if you're a believer? I want to have that relationship. Jesus desires that you would live for him because he wants to live with you and and, and worship and be together with you and, and, and you find your joy and your contentment and your fulfillment in him. And that's what they were doing in verse number six. Not only did they live for God in the darkness, but they also served the Lord in the darkness, verse number eight. And it came to pass while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So he's a priest. Let me give you just a really generic background. He's a priest, and all the priests had to report to the temple uh, in different sections. You would have whatever. Every month, you'd have a number of priests that would have to go. And then there would be different jobs. And the lot literally means like they would put all of the jobs, if you will, to help us understand it, into a cup on a piece of paper and you would reach in and grab that piece of paper. Now, I don't know exactly how it happened, but it's similar to this. It grabbed that piece of paper and it would say, your job is to, and this time it was the job of Zacharias to burn incense and pray before the Lord. This was his ministry during this time. Now, the next time he would serve the, the priest's office or the previous time he would serve at the priest's office, it would probably be different. But this time, this is what his ministry was. This is what the lot fell upon him. And he's burning incense into the temple of the Lord. And he's serving the Lord. And he's serving the people, verses nine and ten, 8, 9, and 10. He's continuing to serve. He's serving in the priest's office. But notice that he is serving in the priest's office, verse 8, before God in the order of his course or the way he was supposed to. He's serving where he's supposed to, the priest's office. He's serving who he's supposed to supposed to God and he's serving how he's supposed to in the order of his course. In other words, darkness didn't keep him from serving. Darkness didn't keep him from serving. Well, pastor, and normally I'm the last guy to find out. People like to call the other pastors around here. Pastor, I've had a tough time. I just, I just don't think I could serve anymore. And, and if you need a break, you need a break. We want to help you all day long. I mean that. But every time it gets a little dark, there's people who just stop serving God. They're not where they're supposed to. They're not serving who they're supposed to. And they're not serving how they're supposed to. And they just kind of back up and go, I just, I just, I don't have it. I'm just not going to serve. Well, I went... I want you to notice in the darkness, they kept serving the Lord. They tell me, the people that study these things, that during COVID and because of COVID, that the average church dropped in attendance by 50%. That's five zero, that's half. By 50%. They say that tens of thousands of churches will never open up again. And we have churches in our own community who've still not opened their doors since March of last year. 
well, I'm just, and I'm not trying to be negative on, on fear and any of that. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm just simply wanting us to understand that even in difficulties and even in darkness and even in challenge, God still wants us to serve him. Well, my marriage is struggling. I get it. Keep serving Jesus. We want to get you help. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to give you counsel if that's what's needed for sure. We want to do all of those things. But keep serving Jesus. These two people, Zacharias and Elizabeth, she's getting mocked when she goes to the market. She's getting ridiculed when she goes to get water. She's getting made fun of when she goes to the temple because they don't have a child. And she's 80 years old. And there's zero prospect, humanly speaking, of them ever having a child. I mean, zero prospect of that. And yet what do they do? They keep serving the Lord. They don't get mad at the Lord. They don't get bitter at the Lord. They're not sitting on the sidelines going, let somebody else do it. No, they're serving where they're supposed to. They're serving who they're supposed to. And they're serving how they're supposed to. They just keep serving Christ. I don't want to minimize the darkness. And I don't know every darkness in this room, but I could tell you this, the Lord does. And can I tell you this? There's a lot of people in the Bible that have been through and are, that have been, went through what you're going through and they kept serving the Lord by the grace of God. Not, not under their own power. The apostle Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Some people say, well, pastor, you just think I have to pull up my bootstraps and get moving? Well, I think there's an issue that maybe you need to pull up your bootstraps because if they're down, you'll trip and get moving can't do anything just standing there but can I tell you all of that is a work of God's abundant grace in your life it's all a work of God's grace even in the darkness hope led them to serve the Lord and I find this last point most interesting verse number 13 an angel of the Lord uh, starting verse number 10 and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of the incense or at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The angel is Gabriel, who would announce the birth to Mary. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. You say, why was he troubled? You ever seen an angel? Me either. The angel said unto him, verse 13, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer, present active tense. And the idea is that it's in the continuum. The prayer you've been praying, thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. Even in the darkness, hope led them to fervently pray. The Christmas story is really a prayer meeting. That's where it all starts. It's Zacharias and Elizabeth fervently praying. What are they praying for? This 80-year-old man has been praying since he got married. Well, how old was he when he got married? He would have probably been an older teenager, maybe between 16 and 17 years old. And she wasn't far behind. She's probably in the same age grouping, if you will. And they've been praying. They started their marriage off with excitement. We're going to have children. And, and at 16, or, or the first year anniversary, they didn't have it. And the second year anniversary, they didn't have children. And then the third year, and the fourth year, and the fifth year, and the sixth year, and the tenth year, and the twentieth year, and the 
the 30th year and the 40th year and the 50th year and the 60th year. And now they've been married by the time they're 80, maybe even 65 years. And notice what they continued to do through all of the darkness. They continued to pray. They prayed with earnestness. They prayed with fervency. Thy prayer is heard. My wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. I just find it interesting that they're 80 and asking God for a son. We have some members who are 80. They were here in the great 30 service. And I asked them, um, if you could have kids right now, would you? They assured me that that's the last thing on their minds. That would not be a miracle for them. That would be something that they would never dream of at 80 years old. But these folks are still praying. Undoubtedly, Zacharias and Elizabeth had read the story of Abraham and Sarah, how God had given them Isaac when they were well stricken in years. Uh, uh, Abraham's 100, uh, 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 Sarah is 90. Or they read the story about Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson who had a son in their old age. And they, he, I think, I just in my mind, Zacharias is of this opinion that if God will do that for them, why won't he do that for me? I wonder how many prayers aren't answered because we give up. Bible says in the book of James, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I wonder how many prayers in your life go unanswered because they're not prayed for. Many of you in this room have lost loved ones and, and you say, well, I've shared the gospel with them. Yeah, but are you fervently praying? Your marriage is in darkness. Okay, your marriage is in darkness. Are you fervently praying? You've got a friend or a loved one who's, who's an addict to something and, and you've tried counsel and you've tried to talk to them and you've even tried to talk to them about God. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you talked to God about them? Are you lifting them up before the Lord? Some of you have wayward children in our church. Some of you have wayward parents that aren't saved. Are you, are you fervent in your prayer for them? Prayer is more, though this isn't bad, but prayer is more than Lord bless our food or uh, now I lay me down to sleep or God give me a good day. Prayer is going to God with specificity and I look forward next year and I, I think in January we'll be doing a, a really cool series on prayer that I've been working on for a while and I'm very, very excited about it. But can I tell you that God wants to answer prayer, to show himself mighty, but God asks you and I to be a people who pray fervently for folks. It's called intercessory prayer. I will stand in the gap for you. You're here and in trouble and God's over here and you're not talking to God for yourself, so I'm going to talk to God for you. And I'm going to talk to God about you. And I'm going to ask God to work on you. And I'm going to ask God to do a miracle. I'm going to ask God to do something that only he could do. I'm going to ask God to change hearts and lives. I'm going to ask God to, to change minds. I'm going to ask God to do what only God is capable of doing. I'm going to pray fervently, even when it's dark. Well, I don't think, Pastor, that anything good will happen from it. 
Well, I can't guarantee you that anything will happen of it. That's not my, I don't have that kind of authority by any means at all. But I can tell you that God is in control. And this brother, Zacharias, and his wife, I don't know how long they prayed, but by the nature and the tenor of the, of the narrative, we aren't taking a leap to say they prayed fervently for an extended period of time. Hope led them to pray fervently. The thrill of hope is not that my circumstances will be amazing. Oh, God, I pray that I'll graduate from college and I'll get a great job and I'll get so many bonuses in the first 30 days that I never have to work again the rest of my life. That is not the thrill of hope. Though, if that happens, stay at Canyon Ridge and tithe. That is not the thrill of hope. The thrill of hope is that I can consistently go to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who in darkness will listen to me and answer my prayer and comfort my soul. It's the thrill of hope. Zechariah and Elizabeth did have a son, John the Baptist. And this was his message. I said it earlier. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Why did he say that? Well, because these are exclusive claims. He is the only, it's a definite article in John 1.29, the only Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He is the only one who can take away the sin of the world. Not your works, not your priest, not your mission trip, not your cynicism, not your overt reaction to the gospel. You can't think it away, dream it away, wish it away. No, no, no. It's the Lamb of God alone who takes away the sin of the world. The question is, has the Lamb of God taken away your sin? Have you put your trust in the Lamb of God? Do you have the thrill of hope? I I can't wait to get to heaven. I look forward to that. I look forward to that day of seeing loved ones that have gone on. I look forward to being in heaven forever with my family. I, I have, there's a thrill about that. Oh, I don't really want to leave, but I really want to go. I can't wait to get there. There's a thrill involved in it. Do you know that your sins have been forgiven? Do you have the hope of eternal life that rests in Christ alone? Pastor, how could I have that? Well, by repenting of your sin. That word repent just means to acknowledge that you've sinned against God. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You're a sinner just like I am. Just like Zacharias and Elizabeth were. Just like every person who's ever lived other than Jesus Christ. You are a sinner. And because of your sin, the Bible says your sin separates you from God. The wages of sin is death. That word death means you're physically dead, you're spiritually dead, and you're eternally dead in a place of torment called hell, eternally separated from God.
you're a sinner and so am I. And the price of sin is eternity in hell. But the Bible goes on to say the gift of God is eternal life. At Christmas season, people give gifts and say good things, and it's a wonderful time, and I love every aspect of it. But can I tell you the greatest gift that has ever been given is the gift of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross of Calvary for your sin and mine, and his blood washes away all our sin. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you will repent and put your trust in Christ, he promises to give you eternal life and to give it to anyone who will call on his name. See, I believe that Jesus Christ, and I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that there is no other way under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, as the Bible says. I believe he's the only means of eternal life. I believe he's the only means of internal peace. He's not only the source of eternal life, he is the only source of internal peace. You can do yoga till you can stretch yourself around the world. It won't provide for you internal peace. Peace comes from Christ and Christ alone. He is the Bible term, prince of peace. That word simply means he's the prince. He's the giver of peace. He's the only source of peace. You could have temporary joy. You might forget your problems for a little while. But as soon as you start thinking of them again, they start coming back. Well, pastor, how do I have peace? Put your trust in Christ alone. Repent of your sin. Acknowledge Jesus is the son of God. He's not just some dude who lived 2,000 years ago. He is the son of God. He is the very God-man. And place your faith totally in him. Dear friend, if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your savior, you will die and go to hell. And all of the sarcasm and all of the cynicism and all of the delays and all of the denials and all of the waiting and all of the posturing and all of that will not matter. You will be in eternity in hell thinking of this very message that God gave you yet another opportunity to meet Jesus. I read the story this week of an elderly woman. Her name was Stella Thornhope. And she was struggling with her first Christmas alone. Her husband had recently died just a few months before Christmas of a long battle with cancer. They had known it was coming. It was one of those where you know. And several days before Christmas, she was almost snowed in. The town was almost to a standstill because of a... Uh, weather pattern in her area and it wasn't totally closed down but it was pretty dark and bleak and she felt terribly alone her kids weren't coming she was basically alone for the first time in really her life she was so maybe defeated or sad one afternoon after she decided she wouldn't decorate for Christmas she wouldn't have anybody over and she wouldn't go anywhere one afternoon the doorbell rang and there was a delivery boy with a box and she answered the door and he said Mrs. Thornhope and she said yes that's me he said I have a package for you would you please sign and she invited him in because it was cold and he walked inside the door and kind of kicked the snow off of his feet and unzipped his jacket and she signed the the clipboard that he was holding and and she said well What's in the box? And he said, oh, let me show you. And he opened up the box and he pulled out a little yellow Labrador retriever puppy. And uh, she was really touched by that. 
And he said, this is for you, ma'am. He's, he's six weeks old, and he's housebroken, which, I mean, that, that's a win right there, just being housebroken. She said, who sent it? And he didn't tell her. He pulled out an envelope. He said, everything is inside this little envelope, man, and it'll explain everything. And, and she said, come on, tell me, who, 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 who got this for me? He said, ma'am, this dog was bought in July when the mother was still pregnant, just pregnant, and, and it was meant to be a Christmas gift to you. And so I just want to give this to you. Everything is said in the letter, and I hope you have a great day. And he handed her a book entitled How to Care for Labrador Retrievers and started to walk out, and she kind of grabbed it, and she said, son, please tell me who sent this to me and he looked at her and he said ma'am your husband sent that to you he wanted this to be his last Christmas present Merry Christmas he walked out the door she opened the letter and her husband had written this letter three weeks before his death he knew that, that death was imminent and he wrote her a letter three weeks before he died and he left it with the kennel owners to be delivered with the puppy as his last Christmas gift to her the letter was full of love and encouragement and uh, admonishments to be strong. He, he vowed, this was his vow in the letter. He said, Stella, I will be in heaven waiting for you. And I can't wait till you're there. She wiped the tears away from her eyes. She read the rest of the letter. She put the letter down and just sat in awe that her husband would be so caring. And she remembered there's a little puppy at her feet and she grabbed him and picked up the puppy and the puppy began to lick her neck. She began to pet him and, and, and joy began to fill her soul like it had not done in many, many months. And she began to sing with the puppy along with the radio tune that was being played about Christmas, Silent Night, Holy Night. And she she looked for the first time at her window and, and she saw that her neighbors had put up Christmas decorations and that her house was bare and had none. And she said to the puppy, let's go get some Christmas decorations. So they went down to the basement and they grabbed a, a box of Christmas decorations and she put up a little tree and she put up a little manger scene and, and they had a little Christmas and she went to some friend's house and she spent the holiday season with them and, and they had a wonderful time. And, and can I tell you this? This is what happened. She got hope back. She was restored in hope. Well, what restored her? That one day she would see her husband again, that she would be with him for all eternity, that they would be together forever. That hope reminded her, that message reminded her that life is stronger than death, that light is more powerful than darkness, that God defeats Satan, and that good will overcome evil. Hope is a alive because Jesus is alive. Do you have hope? It'd be a real bummer to walk out of this room today and not put your trust in Christ. It'd be a real bummer today to let everybody think you're a believer, but you know deep down inside that you're not. And when you die, you die hopeless. But Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. The Christmas stories about a baby in a manger and all those things are wonderful. But it's more about the redemption that we can have because of that child. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. 
your part of the world? Has he taken your sin away? Have you put your trust in Christ? It's a thrill to know Jesus. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.